to the Uproom Frisco podcast. To learn more about your Frisco, please visit uproomfrisco.com. So honored to be with you all. And um, I think my goal this morning is that you would understand the prophetic storyline of why you're here. Even just talking to, to Pastor Jeremy, I didn't know his story was interwoven 18 years praying with Lou Engle on the Supreme Court steps for Roe v. Wade to overturn in America. No, no, no. I, I want you to understand the prophetic significance of these moments. You know, uh, a couple days ago, I, I preached at, uh, at, at, you know, last week, this last Tuesday, I preached at CFNI. And when I was on my way, I felt like the Lord said, tell your story. And that's what I want to do this morning, is I want to tell my story of how I got connected in with Lou Engle and why we're gathering September 3rd and the significance of this gathering. How many of you know who Lou Engle is? Raise your hand. How many of you don't know who Lou Engle is? Raise your hand. Okay. Lou Engle, you'll, you can't really miss him because he, he rocks like this. Even when he eats chips, even when he's drinking a Coke, I joke around that when my phone rings, it starts to rock when he calls. But Lou, I want to tell you his story because I believe what we're tapping into in my generation, in this generation, is nothing new. I believe we're actually tapping into decades of mothers and fathers Grandmas and, and grandfathers that have been praying. You know, they say every revival could be traced back to a prayer meeting, except the Jesus movement. The Jesus movement was a revival that took place in the 60s and 70s. And what's interesting is the Jesus movement culminated in 1972, June 25th, 1972, 50 years ago this month, when Billy Graham came and he filled the cotton bowl. And what was significant about that gathering was when Billy Graham came, is he was kind of the, the, the voice, in, I guess you would say, in America for Christianity. And when he came, he validated that the Jesus movement was here. Remember, when they were in it, they didn't know what was going on. Typically, you don't know a revival when you're in it until years later and you realize, oh my God, there was a move of God. Right? And you, you were, how many of you were alive in the 60s and 70s? You don't have to raise your hand. I can look at you and tell you you were alive in the 60s and 70s. But there are two narratives in the 60s or 70s. You either knew there was a move of God or you didn't. There was no middle. Now, Lou Engle, I get connected with Lou, right? And I get saved in 07. Let me tell you, so I get saved in 07. And in 2008, maybe about six months being saved, my youth group decides to go on this trip I don't come from a Christian background, Christian family, or Christian family, but there's nobody in ministry that really did much. My grandma was a Christian. She was the only hardcore Christian in my family. My grandma was a prayer warrior. My grandma would pray in tongues at three in the morning and put oil on everything. That was my grandma. I don't even know if it was real anointing oil. It probably was Crisco or something, but but she was she was that grandma, okay? And so I, I you know I get radically saved in 07. I was an atheist. And in 2008, everyone after youth group one night is loading up in this bus. And I'm like, where are you guys going? And like, we're going to this thing called The Call. And I was like, what's The Call? They're like, it's this event in San Diego, in Qualcomm Stadium, by a man named Lou Engle. Now, I hated going home because my parents were not Christian. My stepdad was crazy. I did not want to go home. So I said, can I come? And they said, sure. So I called my mom. And my mom had two rules. Like, 
don't go to jail and don't do drugs. If, if I wasn't doing those things, she was fine. She wasn't a believer at the time. She is now. She wasn't a believer. I go, Mom, can I go to this event? She goes, go. So I run home, pack my bags, and I'm on a bus heading to Qualcomm Stadium. No idea what I'm going to. I get to the stadium. We get there the next day, and there's 30,000 that fill this stadium. And I see for the first time this man, Lou Engle, rocking. And there was something about him that drew me to him. I don't know if there's ever been a communicator, a speaker, a pastor, a worship leader, that when they sing or they communicate, there's something in you that just says, I don't know why, but I just really like listening to that person. It's, Lou's taught me this. It's probably because what that person carries is what you carry. It's, the, it's, it's, it's almost like our spirit's witness, right? You ever met someone that you click with their personality? What makes us think that our spirits can't do the same? Then when you meet someone, you're like, you're kindred in heart. You're like, you, you actually burn for the same thing I burn for. So he, he's doing this stadium event. He's rocking. I'm in the stands. I'm only one of 30,000 in these stands. And I hear the voice of God speak to me for one of the first times. And the voice of the Lord says this to me, one day you will work with that man. That's all I heard. Let me pause and put a pin there. I want to tell you Lou's story now. Okay, that was when I met him. Let me tell you Lou's story because it's significant. In 1999, Lou Engle was crying out to God, how can I turn America back to you? He's praying these wild prayers, 1999 before the millennium. How can I turn America back to you? And a woman comes up to him who he doesn't know and says, you don't know who I am, but the Lord spoke to me that you're supposed to start something with the youth of America in prayer that's going to change the destiny of the nation. Here's $100,000 to start it. Lou tells a story like this. I didn't know the lady, but I took her money. <laughs> Little did he know that $100,000 would catalyze the call. And from January to September, they would mobilize the nation. Lou tells this story that he was having nightmares before the gathering that 20 people showed up on the National Mall. But when Lou Engle showed up, the event started at 6 a.m. in the morning. He shows up at 5.30 in the morning, September, right? He shows up at 5.30 in the morning, and 270,000 young people had gathered in the dark. By the time it had reached noon, 470,000 young people filled the mall in D.C. Aaron Custolo was there, and he was nine years old. Why do I tell you that story? Lord speaks to me. You're going to work with that man. 2008, 2010, Lou Engle randomly ends up coming to my church, getting invited to come speak on a Sunday. So the Saturday before that Sunday, I, 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 I go to this bookstore, right? Let me, let me pause. I'm all over the place here, but I just, I'm getting excited. Sorry. Let me put a pause there. Right before Lou Engle is going to come to my church, I'm praying by myself in my bedroom, which I did quite often in my teen years. I'm praying, and I'm, I'm literally crying out to God because I don't know how, like, mantles work. I don't know. Maybe some of you are, like, you know, mantle theologians. I'm not. I just know that we have the ability as believers to ask God to honor previous generations and what he promised in ours. And I'll prove it to you. Jacob was really jacked up. I don't know if you know that in the Bible, he was really messed up. His life, his character. Yet God honored him on behalf of Abraham. This is my hope for Gen Z. My hope for Gen Z is not within their own righteousness. It's number one in the righteousness of Christ, but it's also God has made covenants and altars that he must honor. 
Bible says in Psalms that God exalts his word above his name. Because your name is only as good as your this is, the, this is the key to this hour in America right now. That we are going to God on behalf of the promises he's made with previous generations. Saying you must honor this. You following me? So I'm in my bedroom and I'm crying to God, God. I was always intense when I would pray. Lord, give me the mantle of Lou Engle. Give me the mantle. I was probably maybe 18 years old. Maybe, maybe 19 years old, I don't remember. Give me the mantle of Lou Engle to turn high schools back to God. Nothing happened. I didn't feel this mantle fall. There wasn't a cloak that came down. I prayed this prayer, and a few weeks later, I find out Lou Engle gets invited to our church. So that Saturday before church, I go to this Christian bookstore, and I walk into the bookstore, and I say, excuse me, do you have any books by a man named Smith Wigglesworth? And the, the bookstore says, no, we don't carry any Smith Wigglesworth books, but we have this one book on revival called the Azusa Street Revival. Do you want it? It's by Frank Bartleman. I said, sure, I'll take it. So that Saturday, I start reading this book, the Azusa Street Revival by Frank Bartleman. The next day, Lou Engle comes. He gets on stage, and this is exactly what happens. He goes, God gave, God gave Moses a burning bush. That's how he opens up a sermon. Everyone's just tuned in, right? He goes, there's sometimes God gives a man a burning bush. And there's other times God gives a man a burning book. He goes, I want to tell you about the book that changed my life. The Azusa Street by Frank Bartleman. In my seat, I explode. And I'm like, oh my God, I've caught it. I don't know what it is, but I've caught it. <laughs> Little did I know my storyline with Lou would intertwine. I found myself running after service just to meet him and shake his hand. Not long after that, I found myself going to the calls. Not long after that, I moved to Pasadena, California. There was this one time, Lou called me and he says, can you pick up this woman for me? She needs a ride to a meeting I'm going to do. I said, I'll do anything for you. Showed up, picked up this 89-year-old woman. She's falling asleep in my car drooling. And she goes, so what do you do? And I'm like, I go to high schools. I'm telling her what I do. She sits up and she goes, come see me tomorrow. Come to my house. I need to talk to you. So the next day I go to her house. She's 89 years old. And she goes, listen to me, young man. 12 years ago, I met a man named Lou Ingalls in 2012. And I knew he would change the destiny of America. And I have not met a man since until I've met you. How much money do you need? This was the woman that gave Lou $100,000. Me being a poverty-minded missionary at the time, so 200 bucks, you know. You can't even buy air with 200 bucks in Los Angeles. That lady began to pay my salary for the next five years. As we begin to see revival break out, let me put a pin there. My wife has a very significant story with Lou. My wife, in 2000. And seven was watching God TV as the call Nashville happened. She randomly turned on the TV. God TV was on. And at that moment, there was this Hispanic lady who gets on the TV. And on the TV screen looks at and says, you who are watching through God TV right now, God is going to use you to be a voice to end abortion in America. And what you may not know about my wife is before she became a Christian, she had an abortion. My wife's story is so interesting because... She's such a voice now, an immigrant from El Salvador, 
who had an abortion, who was forgiven by the blood of the lamb. So she's watching this woman give this call from the call, doesn't know who Lou Ingo is until that moment. All of a sudden is gripped watching the television set and begins to weep. Her parents are wondering why she's weeping because she never confessed her abortion. So she treasured it in her heart and a few years later, guess who shows up at her church? Lou Ingalls shows up to preach. My wife's leading worship at the time. Lou's in the front. After my wife gets done leading worship, he goes up to her randomly and says, I need to talk to you. You have a story. I need to know your story. He knows nothing. My wife goes into the back and confesses her abortion for the first time. Lou says, you must be a voice in America. You must stand in America. You must trumpet this. And she goes, I can't. And he goes, why? And she goes, because my father doesn't know. And I can't tell my father. If you come from a Hispanic culture, you would know there are certain things you don't share with your father because of the shame and the reproach. And Lou Engle says, we must begin to pray about how to tell your dad. So they begin to pray. They begin to fast. My pastor begins to fast because he was there. And one day, Marcella's dad wakes up and he comes into the kitchen and he goes, Marcella, I had a, a weird dream last night. And she goes, what'd you dream? He goes, in the dream, I was in a forest and a little girl came up to my leg and was pulling on my pant leg saying, Grandpa, Grandpa, Grandpa. My wife begins to weep under the power of God. She goes, Dad, I have to tell you something. I have to tell you about something I did. Dad, I got an abortion and shame hit the room. My father-in-law was a pastor at the time. He still is. And he looks at Marcel and he goes, who's going to want you? He leaves the room. And he goes on his way to preach at a camp to a bunch of men about family. As he's preaching, the Lord speaks to him and says, you hypocrite. Go home and fix your family. Her abortion isn't her fault. It's your fault. He goes home. But my wife's weeping in her room. He opens up her door and he just says, princess. She begins to weep and there's reconciliation. And my wife becomes a voice. What you may not know about Marcella is in 2012, 39 women for the 39 years of Roe v. Wade walked from Houston to Dallas. From the largest plant parenthood clinic in America to the Supreme Court, my wife walked from Houston to Dallas 21 days praying and interceding. I want you to understand post-Roe what has happened in America. This is not a political issue. If you are you're part of a younger generation and you are believing the narrative of what is being fed to you on Instagram and TikTok, you must understand something. That what took place last week was historic. A death decree was broken in America. Lou Engel. I was sitting here this morning looking at the life band, which I got tattooed on my arm. I remember I used to preach this. I used to wear a life, a life band until they would get faded and fall off. So I just got it tattooed. And I remember I would preach this years ago. I would say, one day, I'm going to be sitting in a rocking chair. Hopefully, I'm 99 years old. And my great-grandkids and my grandkids are going to come and say, Grandpa, what's that life thing on your wrist? And I'll say, oh, long before you were born, 
Abortion used to be legal in this nation. But we stood in prayer. You think it's coincidence that your pastor stood with Lou Ingo 18 years ago with life tape on his mouth in front of the Supreme Court? Do you think it's coincidence that you are positioned in Frisco, which means free man? Do you think it is coincidence? You, I always wonder how we think our lives just magically. I understand that there is sovereignty and free will. But I also know that there's some predestined things. I feel like God kind of puts cheat codes in. Like we're, we're really dumb to fulfill his will and his purpose and his calling. So we're like going this way. He's like, just kind of moves us back in. The storyline begins with Lou. And, in two, and last year at 11-11, I'm with Lou at a restaurant. He's eating chips and he's rocking. And I start telling him about this concert that took place last year by a man named Travis Scott. If you don't know Travis Scott, he's an artist, collabs with shoes, very famous. But he had a concert last year in Houston. His concert was very demonic, 50,000 young people. His stage was an upside down cross. His screen was a portal, he said, went to hell. Not literally, but you God knows what they were commissioning in there was moments in his concert he would stop and begin to chant these weird chants over the crowd hysteria broke out and nine kids died in his concert the youngest being nine years old his name was Ezra look it up there were TikToks that were made by kids who were not Christians and their TikTok videos said something like this I don't know what it's like to be in hell Unsafe kids, but I could imagine it was like this concert. They were tell their experience about in this concert, they were suffocating and they could not breathe. They were kids screaming at the, at the people, the security, help us, as people were dying. And as ambulances were coming in, Travis Scott said, hold up your middle fingers. I'm telling Lou this. And he says, Brian, there must be another gathering to counter the sound that this man released in America. I want you to understand something about what's taking place. And I'm not here to preach an event. I'm going to get to the Bible in a moment. I should tell you this story. There is moments in history in the Bible where God calls people to gather. There are moments in history in the day of trouble when we call upon him, he will answer us. There are moments in history, promise keepers gathered a million men on the mall in D.C. There was a response, young people, Lou Ingle, almost half a million gathered. Lou's been saying this. He's putting out a message up this upcoming week. And the message is going to be this. If you've gathered with me over the last 22 years, you were probably teenagers and young people, just like Aaron Custolo, nine years old. Your father brought you. Aaron, who was nine years old, now has four children. The younger generation has now become the parents. And Lou's message is this. If you stood as young people, will you now stand as mothers and fathers for the next generation? This is far different than a conference. 
This is far different than come here, you're bad. The Lord told us, don't announce banner speakers. Don't tell anybody who's preaching. We must take a sledgehammer to celebrity Christianity in America. <laughs> celebrity Christianity has produced nothing in our generation except pop stars who have no power. We must take sledgehammers to this thing. Not literal. Don't take that out of context. Someone's going to cut the stream and chop that up. No, I'm not saying you take sledgehammers to people. I'm taking, we take spiritual sledgehammers to culture. What if that day was filled with thousands of people that came to meet God? We had this dream, right? How many of you have ever gone on vacation with your family? Anybody? Hope so. Even if it's to the park or somewhere. Vacations serve a purpose. Parents' dreams in that moment is to create memories with your children, although everything seems to go wrong every time you go on vacation. We took our kids to Disney World last year, and they got fevers the day we went. I said, I don't care. We're going. Do you know how much money those tickets were? You will take Tylenol, and we will ride every ride. And we did. But how many parents actually think of making memories on a field, worshiping God with your children? Parents, this is not an event to drop your kids off and you go get a burger. Will you come and stand with your children? Because if you don't, someone else will. We are in the greatest fight for a generation that we've ever been. You, you understand? The significance now, the prophetic storyline. Gen Z for Jesus was really birthed by a man named Aaron Custolo sitting here with us today. Aaron Custolo, would you mind just coming up here and giving us a two-minute breakdown of how this whole gathering began? I love you, man, so much. My gosh, I just get goosebumps and so stirred up every time he opens his mouth. And it's, it's, it's like Lou. When it, whenever he's telling the story of like when you hear somebody speak and you're just like, oh, that's like what happens every time you speak with me. Um, you know, this, this really, like Brian said, we're not just preaching an event or a stadium, but there is something that is thundering from the heart of God that he desires Gen Z as his own. It's not that he loves them more than millennials or more than boomers or anything, but you know, I was a youth pastor for about eight years and I used to pray a lot of desperate prayers for Gen Z, like, oh God, Gen Z's so messed up, broken, would you just fix them? And this one day that the presence of God struck me and I heard him thundering from his throne, Gen Z is mine, Generation Z is mine. And as I heard this thundering from the heart of the Father, I realized there was something that I hadn't tapped into as somebody that was wearing the badge of spiritual father as a youth pastor for a generation. I was actually releasing the sound that the enemy was releasing. They're broken, messed up, too far gone. The Father was thundering, Generation Z is mine. 
And I believe mothers and fathers right now are being invited into the heart of God. And young Gen Zers and millennials are being invited into the heart of God to agree with what heaven is doing in Generation Z right now. You might have, might have heard us talk about this, but in, in uh, Luke chapter 8, this man named Jairus comes to Jesus and says, uh, Jesus, my daughter is dying, a 12-year-old girl. And J Jesus comes with Jairus, and they get to the house, and there's all this commotion and noise and weeping and wailing. And Jesus says this. He says, why, you know, why all this commotion? She's not dead. She's just sleeping. And the crowd ridicules him. This is not some strange crowd. This is relatives. This is like friends. This is neighbors. They ridicule Jesus. And what does Jesus have to do? He has to put out all the commotion. All the noise. He puts them all out of the house and he takes the father, the mother, and his three closest disciples into the bedroom with this 12-year-old girl to witness the miracle of her coming out of death and into life. And I believe this is, we believe this is what God is doing in Generation Z right now. We have a generation that's not dead. Can I just say that? Gen Z's not dead. They really aren't. I mean, everywhere we go, we see such hunger in Gen Z. They are blazing for Jesus. They really are. Even here in Upper Room Frisco, even talking with Alexis, even in Dallas, there is a burning passion and love for God in Gen Z. They are not dead. Now, there is many in their generation who are sleeping, and we believe God is inviting us into this moment where I don't want to be that pastor. And that's what God confronted me with in this encounter is either I was going to be like the ones that get put out of the house because I just kept on making the noise about how the suicide rates and all the depression and all the negative stuff of Gen Z. I was either going to get put out of the house or I was going to enter into the heart of God for a generation. And we believe on this field, God is inviting us into his heart for Gen Z. He's inviting us into that bedroom moment to see Gen Z come back to life, mothers and fathers and young generation. And that's why it's Gen Z for Jesus, because that's what we heard him say. Gen Z is mine. They're for him. They're his. It's Gen Z for Jesus. So good. So why Upper Room? What is your significance? I heard that in a couple years back, Michael Miller was preaching a series on Gen Z. I wasn't there. I was in L.A. It's where we're all from. I was living in L.A. Someone had just bought us a 20,000 square foot art museum. That was going to be our offices. I just bought a house. I was ready to live and die in Los Angeles. And Michael Miller was preaching a message on Gen Z. Upper room is praying morning, noon, and night. And the message with the intercession, I believe, became a fragrance to God. And as I'm moving boxes in, in March 2020, I just bought a house. Five days into buying my house, my pregnant wife is on the couch. And the Lord speaks to her and says, if I ask you to move, would you be offended? So my wife says, the Lord asked me a question. Now, my wife is a terrifying woman when it comes to what she hears and what she dreams. 
Every morning I wake up with a quiver in my leg. Did you dream? She'll say yes or no. If she says yes, I'll say, was it good or was I in it? I can't get away with nothing. I just... The recent one, she says, you need to fast. I'm like, yeah, I know. You want me to lose weight or you want me to fast? But she... The Lord says, will you be offended if I ask you to move? She said, Brian, the Lord asked me a question. I said, what did he say? He says, will we be offended if he said I move? I said, oh, we did move. We're five days moving into a house I just bought. She goes, no, I think he's asking us to move again. I says, I don't have any money. I've spent everything here. Like, we have nothing. This is not the Lord. Because why would God give us a building nine months ago and a home five days ago to ask us to give it up? I want you to understand something about sacrifice, okay? Sacrifice is one of the very few things in the life of a believer that is transferable to your generations and lineages beyond you. See, your money is not guaranteed to transfer over. Your home, your wealth, but your sacrifice is something that the devil cannot touch that flows into your lineage, and I'll prove it to you. Abraham was asked to give his one and only why did he say one and only? Because Abraham had two sons. And if God wouldn't have been specific, he probably would have been like, Ishmael, let's go. <laughs> but what did God orchestrate when Abraham went up with Isaac? Isaac had to carry his own wood to the sacrifice. And because Isaac was willing to carry his wood, Generations later, Jesus was willing to carry his wood. Sacrifice produces something in your lineage that the devil can never take away. This is why there are, there are moments like this where, yes, this is a sacrifice. Yes, we're asking you to gather, but you have no idea what will come generations from now. Can you imagine those who were there 22 years ago where half a million gathered? There is something that was deposited in Aaron's life that now decades later, here he is raising all of his kids in God. I'm not saying if he wasn't there, he wouldn't be here, but I don't know. I wonder what was deposited. His father brought his son to a field 22 years ago and taught his son how to sacrifice for God. Are you following me? Message, intercession, we're not moving Marcella. We're not going nowhere. I said, the only way I'll go is two things have to happen. Three months later, those two things happened. <laughs> and I said, I don't know where we'll go, but I feel like if we moved anywhere, Marcella, we'd go to Dallas. So I told her. I didn't know anybody here except Michael Miller. And I only knew him for a couple months. And in August, 30 of us uproot, we sell everything. And 30 of us stroll into Upper Room Dallas one day. No one has no idea who we are, except Michael. He knew we were coming. And I got this revelation a few months back that the prayers of Upper Room, the messaging of Upper Room, the heart of Upper Room provoked God so much that he interrupted a pregnant woman on her couch in Los Angeles. And that pregnant woman interrupted an entire community. And that entire community has come to Dallas for such a time as this. But this is your story. 
upper room, you will not sit on the sidelines in this move of God hitting America. You ever wonder why your church has blown up worldwide? Really? I know sometimes you could only see what God's doing in your room, but do you understand the influence of upper room? I mean, Baptists love you guys. <laughs> Baptists sing your songs. Upper room is breaking all denominational barriers with its sound. Do you realize that? Your worship has broken through. Not just the personal breakthrough in people's lives, but denominational barriers. God has put you center stage in the most historical times in the pandemics. Verge of global war, viruses, God's put upper room. Front center stage. When I called Michael, I said, I don't know, Michael, we want to gather. This was last year. I said, but I would only do it if two things happen. Lou Engle has to say yes, and upper room has to say yes. I call Lou. He says, let's gather. Let's gather September 3rd on the 22nd anniversary of the call. 60 years ago this year, a court case happened called Ingle versus Vitell. That was a court case that removed prayer from public schools. The Lord spoke to Lou years later and said, your name is Ingle, reverse, Ingle versus Vitell. And I'm not talking about a governmental Supreme Court reversal, although last week the Supreme Court voted in favor of teachers praying in public schools 60 years later. God forbid we would be like the people of Acts that prayed for the apostles' freedom from prison and then when the apostle was at the door knocking, they did not open the door because of their disbelief. Their, the Bible says this, because of their joy and excitement, they did not open the door for the apostle. Do you realize that we have shifted now in America where your prayers are no longer prayers, they're monuments of God's faithfulness of what he's already done. This is the hour in which we're living in. And I asked the Lord, what do I preach now in this hour? And I felt very simply, the Lord said, the message of the Nazarites. If you've never heard this, it's, I'm going to be real brief. I think that progressive Christianity has existed in our country. If you don't know what that is, progressive Christianity in its simplest term is the cross with no cost. The promise with no price. You can do what you want, when you want, how you want, and God just loves you. Can I tell you some honest truth? The question is never, does God love you? The question is, do you love God? Because the Bible says to love God is to obey his commands. We don't bend the Bible to fit our life. We bend our life to fit the Bible. As Christians, this is not an old school message. This is, this is the way. Jesus never said, become the best version of yourself. The best version of you sucks. I promise, I don't, even got, I don't even need to know you. I just know it does. There's so many books on self-help and self-care and self-this. The only thing I've ever read here is die to yourself. I believe that message is gonna become popular again in this generation. You understand? I think we have made the bar so low for young people. And I feel we gotta raise it. I'm a millennial. I was born in 90. I'm a true millennial. 
I played PlayStation 1. I drank Capri Suns and ate Pizza Pockets. We didn't know what gluten-free was, nor did we care. Now they got diet Capri Suns and all this other stuff. But you know what the mistake that was made in my generation with, and I say this with all love and honor and respect, with the way we were stewarded in the church, is we were never given the opportunities like we could have for radical abandonment for God with millennials. We were given Guitar Hero in youth group. Fog machines, drinking soda through a sock, icebreakers, and I'm not saying icebreakers are bad. You know what we needed? Give everything. Because what was done in moderation in my generation has now become excess in Gen Z. And I believe that the only thing we are to do now in this hour is to set ourselves apart for God. It's not about just attending here once a week. If you think you're doing God a favor once a week when you come here, you're not. You're not doing him a favor because you throw money in a bucket. You're not doing God a favor just because you worship. You know what's interesting about worship is God doesn't need your worship. I don't know if y'all know that. Like if you don't worship, he's not freaking out, having a himself complex in heaven. Like around his throne is 24-7 day, night, night and day worship. But you know what happens when you worship? Your worship as humans actually produce a different fragrance, and here's why. Although God has worship around his throne 24-7, angels have never known sin. Angels have never known exhaustion. Angels have never known flesh. So when they worship, it produces a different kind of fragrance than when you worship. Because when you come on a Sunday, you have to press past that sin you've been struggling with. You have to press past your flesh, that argument, that job you lost, those kids that are going crazy, your marriage is on the verge of divorce. That is a different fragrance to the throne that God smells that's different than when an angel worships. This is why when we say your worship is powerful, that's why it's powerful. Because you have to press past your flesh and believe that this God in heaven actually hears you. Angels require no faith. They see him. You require faith, which is why we have the ability as humans to please God more than angels do. Because without faith, it's impossible to please wholehearted consecration. No more side lying water boys in the church everyone plays everyone's in even those of you that feel like but i'm just i'm just in, i'm just a business guy i'm just in the marketplace i'm just here i'm not telling you to quit your jobs i'm telling you to get skin in the game i'm just a father you know you're not just a father you are the greatest firewall to the heart of a generation Every father in here, you hold a bigger position than the pastor. The pastor gets an hour. You get a lifetime with your kids. Don't quote me on this, but I believe this to be true. Before the 60s, I don't even know if there were youth pastors because fathers were doing their jobs. Youth pastors have had to exist because of fatherlessness. 
My younger brother got saved three days ago at the riders camp, circuit riders camp. I baptized him two days ago. My brother has grown up with no father. Fatherlessness produced a hardened heart. But what happened when a bunch of people came and rallied behind him? Every wall broke. Parents, can I talk to you for 30 seconds before I read the Bible? Do you understand that you have the ability to do something as a mom and a dad in this generation? You know, I come from a family where my grandma served the Lord. My father and mother did not. My mom's a Christian now. My father is still not. My father's name is Brian Barcelona. I bear his same name. So every time I preach, every time I've seen souls saved, every time I've had faith, it hasn't actually come from my biological father who's given me that. He was never an example of Christ at all. So how did I become who I've become? Spiritual fathers. Men and spiritual mothers, men and women who did not have their blood flowing in my veins gave me an inheritance. Prove it in the Bible, Brian. I'll prove it to you right now. Jesus could relate to a Gen Zer. He had a teenage mom and a stepdad. Prove me wrong. Jesus' line was traced back to King David through his mother. You know that? If you don't know it, read the genealogy. But did you know that Jesus' bloodline was also traced back to King David through Joseph, his stepfather? So because a man was willing to father a kid that wasn't his, Jesus' bloodline was grafted into David through that man. The next generation, do you know that some of them only have a chance at a godly lineage if you say yes to them? Yeah. Apart from your yes, they will never have an opportunity to know a godly lineage. Are you hearing me? Yeah. Are you seeing the significance as parents? Grandparents, you are not just called to love those who bear your name. There is so much you have to give. You are so needed in this hour. In Numbers chapter 6, there was a vow that was made. And unlike the Levites who were born into the Levitical priesthood, they were born into the church, they were born into the ministry, the Nazarites were not. The Nazarites were a group of people that although they weren't born into it, they chose to live a life as though they were. The Nazarites in the Old Testament was a vow that was made that was not just for men, it was also for women. How many of you know God uses women? You know that, right? You don't believe me? First evangelist, John 4, a divorced woman five times. I think the Lord chose the one that would have the most controversial situation. She was also the first one that got Jesus's revelation that he was the Messiah. I would also say that the disciples probably wouldn't have known for a while that Jesus had risen had it not been for the women. And you know what's interesting about that is when the women run back with the report that he had resurrected, you know the men didn't believe him? You know they didn't believe him. I think that they didn't believe him because of their pride. Could imagine the disciples thinking, Jesus would reveal himself to you first? Please. Where are the men? Where are his disciples? They brought back the report. 
God uses women. Let me read this to you. Stay with me. Stay with me. Again, the Lord, number six, again, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them that when a man or woman makes a special vow of a Nazarite to dedicate himself to the Lord, he shall abstain from strong wine, from wine and strong drink, and he shall drink no vinegar, rather made from wine or strong drink. Let me pause here. This is not legalism we're getting into. So it's not like I can never have Welch's grape juice. It's not what I'm saying. I want you to understand something here, that one of the first vows that a Nazarite would make is they would give up wine. Wine in their day was a delicacy. Wine was a delicacy. Now, I feel like sometimes people are like, well, man, I, 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 don't, I already abstain from sin. Great. That's like the basics of Christianity. Good job. I'm not talking about the basics of your Christianity. I'm talking about the step above that. Where something is not sin, yet it could be a distraction in that hour for what God's calling us to. Right? Do I think Netflix is a sin? Do I think watching Lion King is a sin? No. But what if God in this hour is calling us to just a different type of consecration because of what he wants to do that requires a different type of focus? You get what I'm trying to say? This isn't legalism here. This is love. Okay? They would abstain from wine and strong drink. All the days of his separation, he shall not eat anything produced by a grape. Let me go to the next verse. Verse 5. All the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall pass over his head. Does that mean that in a year, all of you are going to have hair down to here? That's not what I'm talking about. Some of you can't even grow hair down to here. It's not what I'm talking about. But how many of you know when someone has long hair, you can visibly see it? Yes? This is an outward expression of an inward heart. How many of you have ever been to a fair, a carnival, the state fair, and you go up to those caricatures, those people that draw your faces? Anybody ever do that? How many of you know that they always pick one feature on your face and they exaggerate it? So if you got a little bit of big ears, your ears are massive in the picture. If you got a big nose, your nose is massive. You got big eyes, your eyes are massive. They enhance whatever sticks out to them. My question to you is if the world was to draw your Christianity, what would pop out to them that would be your greatest feature? Would your life actually outwardly express your inward devotion to God? This is what growing your hair out symbolized. It's an outward expression of what's going on. I'm set apart. I don't want just a bunch of people not drinking grape juice and growing out their hair and still living like the devil, okay? You following me? All the days of his separation, no razor shall pass over his head. Verse 6. You can go back and read this for yourself too. All the days of his separation to the Lord, he shall not go near any dead person. Now, I'm not saying you don't go to grandma's funeral if that happens. What I am saying is what and who in your life do you need to cut off for a season? You know, I used to get made fun of when I was in my teens, when I got saved, because I loved God. I came from a really broken family. So when I, like, followed God, I actually had to pay a price for it. My stepdad was an atheist, and every night I got home from youth group, every week, he would sit me down at the table for an hour, and he would say, the Bible is not real. And he would go, verses, explain this, explain this. And I would be sitting there as a 17-year-old boy like this, I can't explain it. I know it doesn't make sense, Chris. I don't know how to explain the blind guy's eyes that opened. But what I do know is I was bound and I'm not anymore. 
I remember, I remember 17 years old. I was so skeptical about people that spoke in tongues. I was like, that's all fake. I was struggling, but I loved God, right? I was reading the Bible to obtain faith. I wasn't reading it because I believed it. To encourage some of you that feel like you're in that season where you're struggling with your faith. You following me? I go to this meeting this youth group has, and the guy goes, if you don't believe in tongues and you want to get filled with the Holy Spirit, come up. I ran up. He's like, put your hands up. He put his hand on me. And he said, Father, I pray you'd fill him. I don't fall, and I don't do courtesy falls, just so you know. You come and push me at the altar, I'll push you back. I'm not falling down to make you feel better about your sermon. But I fell to the ground, 17 years old, and I wept for four hours, shaking. They carried me to my bed. And when I went home, I was different. I'm not saying it was easy, but there was a difference in everything about me. I've been serving God for 15 years. When I got saved, my stepdad looked at me and he said, I give you three months, kid, and you'll be back doing what you're doing. I told my brother who got saved this week, that's his father. I said, you know, your dad told me I'll give you three months. I said, Ian, here I am 15 years later. I said, Ian, you're going to follow God all the days of your life. And in that teenage years, I made a vow called the Nazarite. I did grow out my hair just because I wanted an excuse to do it. But I abstained from delicacies for two years. I abstained from meats and sweets. I dug my face in the Bible. People were so fed up with me because all I would do is read the Bible. I'd go to birthday parties and I'd read the Bible. I'd be at family functions and I'd have the Bible. My mom, this is before she was a Christian, and I'm not saying to do this, I was very religious too and, and mixed in, but she was like, I don't want to talk to Jesus. I want to talk to my son. And I said, then I won't give my pearls to the swine. You know, don't, don't say that to your mother. That's, a, that's stupid. Don't, don't do that. We laugh about that now. But I was possessed by God. He didn't have half of me. He had all of me. And this morning... You're only going to tap into the storyline of God for September. You're only going to be able to celebrate the overturning of a death decree. You're only going to be able to stand the significance of what God is doing in the highest courts of America. He is sparing us. Cain, Cain kills Abel and Abel's blood cries from the ground. I wonder what the sound of 60 million babies crying justice from the ground sounds like in America. Lou Engle always says this, that revi revival precedes judgment. He says, you can't stop judgment. America will answer for the 60 million babies. You can't stop that. Judgment will come on this nation. But you can lessen it. Bible says we're the salt of the earth. Why do you put salt on your food? Because it makes your food more desirable to eat. Do you know that us as Christians, we make the earth desirable for the Lord? It's why we're still here in America. There's something very special about Dallas and this whole region. 
Nick Vujicic, guy with no limbs, he said, Dallas has honored God and God will honor Dallas. Could it be that the center of the country, there would come a sound of a move of God? If you this morning, I don't care how old you are, if you say, man, I want to go to a different level of consecration, maybe there's phone calls you need to make when we're done here, people you need to reconcile with. I mean, for reals, why, why fake it for another 10 years? Like, why just show up here but not live? Like, I don't know about you. Like, you might as well just, like, not, I don't mean like not come. You get what I'm saying? Like, why not go all in? Why not let this morning be like, yes, I want to live a lifestyle of a Nazarite. John the Baptist was a Nazarite, a voice crying in the wilderness, and he prepared the first coming of the Lord. What if this generation is to prepare a second? We're to be a voice. If you this morning say, I want to make a vow with the Lord, I want you to do here. Will you stand to your feet? We want to make a Nazarite vow together. And what this simply means is, man, I want to, I want to give every little ounce, not one room in the house left anymore. And I don't know what that means for you. I don't know what the delicacies the Lord is asking in this hour for you. I don't know. I don't know. And there's no shame. You don't stand up. I'm not offended. I don't even know you to get offended. But I think that there is a significance in this room that young and old are standing together. God forbid we get to September 3rd and there's thousands of young people and no fathers. You know what the spirit of Elijah does? It turns the hearts of the fathers to the children. My prayer in this hour, dads, is you would begin to weep again for your kids. You don't need to be strong. You know what your kids need to see? Your tears. You know what they need to see? They need to see you go home today and say, son, I'm sorry that I've just failed as a dad. Can we do it over? Because if I don't fight for you, son, who will? Who will? Mothers that have felt hope deferred because your husbands aren't the men that God's called them to be, I believe that's going to change in this hour. Men are going to get awakened. Men are going to get awakened. You, where you are, we just bow your heads. I don't know what it is that you want to say, God, you have this part of me. Just give me a minute. I just want to wait for a moment. feel like for some it's you've had this plan for your life how you want everything to go not bad stuff godly stuff give that to him this morning give him your plans just keep your head bowed you know last six about seven no probably maybe over oh yeah about a year ago in the summer of 2021 I was at uh, Awaken the Dawn tent meeting in Virginia. And this woman comes up to me and she says, the Lord told me to give you some money. And I'm thinking, okay, you're going to give me 20 bucks, you know, 100 bucks. She hands me $10,000. 
And I asked her, is this a donation for the ministry or is this a gift for my family? She said, it's a gift for your family, but the Lord will tell you what to spend it on. So I deposited it into my bank and I'm thinking about my flat screen TV I want to get, a PlayStation 5 that I could never afford. And the Lord says, that's not your money. Six months later, the Lord tells us to do a field. Every other field is not available except Riders and Frisco. The contract comes in and the deposit is $10,000. I knew one thing, that God knew we would do this gathering long before we did. Guess who wrote a check? We did. All I asked the Lord that day is I said, God, I don't, want, I don't need you to bless me a hundred times fold financially. Will you just give us 10,000 young people? For every dollar, will we just see 10,000 young people gather on a field? Because I don't want to build something that costs me nothing. Just where you're at, would you just begin to just surrender every bit of your life? This is not an altar call for salvation, right? I'm not talking about, do you believe in God? I'm talking about... Not do you believe in him, do you believe him? There's a difference. Let's just take the next 30 seconds, a minute right now of just surrender, whatever you want to surrender to God right now. Lord, I just pray that as we commit like the Nazarites, Lord, to abstain from delicacies, to have an outward life that reflects an inward heart, God, to just say, I don't want to be around dead stuff. I don't want to be around things that just suck out my faith, Lord. I want to be for you sold out. I pray the message of abandonment and surrender, God, would become the banner in America again. In Jesus' name, just take the next moments and you have your conversation with God. You guys can lead us.